Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another edition of 605, the Super Podcast, the only podcast on Turner Time. The Mothership! And that's what this is, The Mothership, a.k.a. the 605 Super Podcast, and while we are in production on the next never-ending episode of the 605, the mighty 605, right here, this episode one of The Mothership, a.k.a. the 605 Super Podcast, gives me a chance to talk, in this case, short form, with various guests about various topics as they happen, just kind of record something and put it up whenever I feel like it. You know, that good old Arcadian Vanguard ethos. So here is episode one of The Mothership, and my talk with Greg Oliver. He's been a guest on the 605 several times, including talking about Rocky Johnson. And of course, Greg's article on Rocky Johnson is up right now at SI.com, Sports Illustrated. It is one of their cover stories. Check it out. You'll hear a lot more about it, including the title of the article. In just one second, here's my conversation with Greg Oliver. I am very happy to welcome back to the show today, Greg Oliver, of course, the man behind Slam Wrestling, the author of at least a dozen books, possibly more, we'll ask him in a moment, and now, as of today, as we are recording, a writer for Sports Illustrated, or at least this article was on Sports Illustrated, and the article in question is, DNA says these five strangers were all fathered by the same wrestler, and The Rock is their half-brother. This is the story of how the children of a WWE Hall of Famer, Rocky Johnson, found one another and rediscovered family. The author is Greg Oliver. Greg, thanks for being here again today. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been a a crazy day. It's, uh, I mean, what can I say? It's Sports Illustrated. I grew up with it. Uh, You know, loved it all my life. And and I finally get an article. It's it's, it's online, but, you know, it's not 1970 anymore either. Like, (laughs) online probably means more than being in the magazine these days. I think so. And I'm one of those people that my dad got Sports Illustrated all throughout my childhood. So I always had it around and eventually I started reading it. So even though it's a different animal today and publishing is a different animal, to me, it's still a big deal. You know, for someone like you to have an article on SportsIllustrated.com is pretty cool. I agree. I'm I'm marking out, to use the wrestling term, but... Deep inside, I just sent a couple of notes to, you know, some mentors over the years, the people that really meant a lot to me and encouraged my writing. This is different than a book, and it's hard to describe just because it is Sports Illustrated. And, and you know, books are great, but books are a lot easier these days to self-publish. And it's the same thing. You could self-publish this article tomorrow. Uh, and I could have on Slam Wrestling, and that you note know, one of your questions. Uh, but the fact is, wanted to go bigger, went to Sports Illustrated, and, and, and it's a great uh, platform for their story to get told. Well, that was going to be actually one of my questions in terms of the story and where the story landed. In this case, Sports Illustrated, of course, as I said at the top, you are the man behind Slam Wrestling. Everyone should check that out for daily wrestling news, great coverage of all the things happening in wrestling. Why did this appear on Sports Illustrated? And was this a relationship you were working on? Did it become that you had the story and you wanted a better platform for it? What was the road to getting you and this story on SportsIllustrated.com? It was a little bit of all that, to be honest. The fact is that um, I I wrote this story about a year, 14 months ago, it was done. And you trust it with a few people because it's such a sensitive story. And one of my friends, an editor, really encouraged me to reach out and try to get it to a bigger platform. 
than Slam. And and that's not knocking Slam. What John Powell and, and Bob Kapoor and I do at Slam has been great. It's been a little great sideline for us all these years. But again, it's not Sports Illustrated. It's not that next step. And Sports Illustrated wasn't the first place I went. I, you know, I don't need to name all the places, but some big magazines and newspapers that I tried to get to, um, you know, it was almost like everybody was scared of the rock. I can't, nobody ever said that's not why we're going to do it, but it was kind of frustrating. But then you ask the right person and they get you in touch with the right person. It was in this case was, was Adam uh, Durson, who's the, the senior editor at um, Sports Illustrated for the features for the daily cover. He loved the idea, um, and I worked with him for a long time getting it to this point. And it was a long process, um, for sure. And and a great, enlightening experience as far as a different level of editing than, again, compared to a book or compared to what we do on Slam, which is often reactionary, as opposed to something that's very well thought out, very well researched and fact-checked and all those great things that, that make the article really stand out, I think. So in terms of the article, you mentioned that this is something you've been sitting on, something you worked on and finished. You've been sitting on this for over a year. If we go back a couple of years, you were on the 605, and you and I were talking about the controversy at that time around the publication ECW Press putting out Soul Man, the Rocky Johnson biography, autobiography, depending on what you want to consider it, that was written by Scott Teal and then quickly pulled from the shelves. Big controversy about that and about Rocky's relationship with Scott Teal, and it led to us discovering that you, as well as Seth Turner, I believe, had also worked on variations of Rocky's book, and you also talked about at that time that you had a good relationship with Rocky's brother, Ricky, which plays into this article. So talk a little bit about the origin of where the story came from, or maybe that's the wrong way to put it. We know the origin of where the story came (laughs) from, but what made you decide that this was a story you really wanted to dive into, and how did it all come together? Uh, it, it's because of Ricky Johnson, really. I've known Ricky since, you know, I was a young kid covering pro wrestling. Uh, that was, you know, 1987, 88, that kind of thing. We've always kept in touch. Um, so that's the best way to put it. But along the way, I got invited to his 65th birthday party. And it was unbelievable because he actually bought me a beer. And I hope he listens to this because he knows how rare that is. Ricky is not <laughs> the guy who ever buys somebody a beer. He's happy to request a beer. Uh, Anyways, at that point, I met a couple of his nieces and nephews, and I didn't really, I just figured they were people related to Curtis and Wanda. And and like a lot of families, he says, well, they're related to me, and they don't always explain why or how. Um, But later I learned how this all came about, that they were Rocky's kids, and he'd never acknowledged them, and it was just very intriguing. And then it turned out that there's five of them. Uh, so I went through my notes and I realized that one of them had been in touch with me back in like 2008 or the daughter of one of them had. So this was no secret, uh, I guess, in some ways. The fact that there was five of them that had found each other is really the amazing part of it. Um, that, that's sort of the best way to put it. And I didn't I didn't want to sit on it this long, but sometimes you want the best platform. You want to do the best work. And there were a lot of things I went back to them and bug them about, or I need this, or I need that. Uh, so I think it ended up being a bit bigger and better article um, by taking my time with it. But yeah, that's that's the gist of it. Uh, Rocky and I talked about some of these things. I don't have all the stuff I talked with Rocky on the record, but I know we talked about kids because I knew I wanted to sit down with Wanda and Curtis, who are from his first relationship, 
And I wanted to talk to them about Rocky as a father. Like, that's what you do with an autobiography. You talk to other people, and it's not necessarily quoting them, but you're going back then to your subject matter and hearing anecdotes. So I just finished John Gibbons' book, who was the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays for many times, and an old New York Met. 1986 New York Met. Let's start with the important part. He was a member, although not on the postseason roster, a member of the 1986 world champion New York Mets. Exactly. Yeah. So he was the, he was the bullpen catcher. So he wasn't on the active roster, but he was there. He knew all those guys. I mean, he roomed with Strawberry in, in the rookie league or sorry, in the instructional league or the in struggle league, as they called it. But so with Gibby, though, I went and I talked to his three kids. And so then you go back to him and you get questions and you get things. Well, clarify this or tell me about what the couch actually means to you. So I would have done the same thing with Rocky. You, you want to talk to all these other people. And and that's just my process, and that may not be every writer's process, and, and a lot of autobiographies, as we know, just sort of get whitewashed. Uh, I'm not saying Scott Teal did that at all. I have a huge amount of respect for Scott Teal, but I'm not sure exactly sure how much how forthcoming Rocky was with it all. And the fact that Wanda and Curtis from his first relationship weren't mentioned at all in his autobiography, I think, speaks a lot to the man. Well, two questions on that front. One... You mentioned correspondence in 2008 from the daughter of one of Rocky Johnson's children. What was that correspondence then? And secondly, in terms of Wanda and Curtis, when did you become aware of them in relation to when you were working on Rocky's book? Was it years before? Was it right before? When would it have happened? Uh, I'm not, it's some of the stuff's a little fuzzy because all these people come and go. And that was part of the challenge, even just figuring out with the, the Facebook posts, like when everybody got in touch, it it can be a bit of a blur with all this stuff. Um, when I heard from Paula's daughter, Shana in 2008, I don't think I really followed up a lot with her. I'm sure I sent a note and said I'd ask. And then when I talked to Rocky, I think I asked him in person at least once. And I think I just got a glare. You know, a lot of these guys have skeletons in the closet they don't always want to talk about. And, and it's not just Rocky and it's not just pro wrestling related. I don't know. Did I answer the question there, Brian? I got a little confused there. Well, you kind of did, and you hit on something else. And I'm actually surprised we haven't seen more of these stories, all things considered, and knowing how guys were in the territory days, traveling from place to place, not always faithful to your wife. That was one of the reasons some of the vagabonds got into the wrestling business. That, that's so true. But, but there's other ones that we don't necessarily need to talk about. I, I helped um, Sputnik Monroe get in touch with one of his kids, or the other way around, one of his kids turned out to be Sputnik Monroe's, and just before Sputnik died, he got in touch and got to meet his father. And that was a small little thing. I didn't do it for any publicity. It wasn't a story. It's just, it's the right thing to do. And there's been a few times along the way that I've done that. There's been other times where you just place it in their lap and say, listen, it's, this is completely up to you, but you know, here are the details. This person says they're related. It's up to you. And you can't do anything about it, right? It's got to be in their court, right? They're, they're the ones that got to go reach out and get in touch. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. Mainly what the kids want to know is what their family was like, right? What the, what the family heritage is like. Who who are the ancestors? What diseases, you know, hereditary things they may carry. Uh, and, and again, as I said, it's, it's hardly unique to wrestling. Uh, when I did my book with uh, on Billy Van, the old actor that was on Sunny and Cher, he had a child basically in high school, and it had nothing to do with her. But she's a part of the story, so she's a part of my book. And once again, I want to encourage everyone to check out this story. It is one of the daily cover stories at SI.com. 
Greg Oliver's article about Rocky Johnson. Giant headline, but I'll read it again. DNA says these five strangers were all fathered by the same wrestler, and The Rock is their half-brother. I was just going to say, they actually call it Finding Rocky's Family and that the great art that they did for it. So I don't know why that doesn't show up at the very top of the page, because that's a much more compelling, shorter headline. But again, it's been neat working with a different editor and a different editorial team and the layout people and all these things and just seeing a different aspect because Slam's very much a mom-pop kind of thing uh, where we do a, I think we do a really good job, but also it's a very small thing, not, not some massive company uh, doing daily stuff like Sports Illustrated does. You know, in the last few years, just to, we'll go back to Rocky Johnson in a second, but this applies to him. But in the last few years, we've seen a few more cases publicly of children coming out and saying this wrestler is, or I accuse him of being my father. I recently just talked about something on one of the Jim Cornette shows about Tito Santana having a daughter that apparently emerged. And of course, Lauren Boebert was in the news here in the States because of the allegation that she may be Stan Lane's illegitimate daughter. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Illegitimate children or children out of wedlock are one thing. Mike Graham was technically a child out of wedlock because Eddie Graham never married Mike Graham's mother and Mike didn't know it. But I think what bothers me so much and what probably bothers a lot of people about the Rocky Johnson thing is that they were ignored. They would reach out and he would hang up on them. And that's one of the things I found so bothersome about it is that it's one thing having a child outside of your marriage and maybe being a little embarrassed about it or wanting to hide it. But I can understand that maybe a little bit with Rocky Johnson or anyone, but it's ignoring them when they reach out that I think was so bothersome to me. Right. It's, it's the one thing, like, if you, you don't know they exist, that's, that's a whole different matter. But when they finally get in touch with you, um, yeah, you, you should take the time. And it's fascinating because, yeah, two of them actually did get phone calls or talked to Rocky at various times. Uh, one of them, Lisa, who's the, really the protagonist of the story in some ways, because she's carrying the story forward as the documentarian. Uh, she reached out and she ended up talking to Rocky's um, third wife, Sheila, and getting a lot of closure there, but it wasn't enough, right? It's still not her father. So there's all those elements. And then there's Aaron, who didn't even know that he was, Rocky was his dad until after the Rocky was dead. So, you know, you get all these different levels of things and it's, it's just that to me, that's as fascinating as anything. And, and we can't get into Rocky's head. Why didn't he do it? He wasn't with Ada anymore. All that cheating that went on whatever time it was, or Una was his first wife. Cause these all, these are all much older kids. They're all older than Dwayne. So they all date back further than, than Ada. So yeah, what's there to hide at a certain point? Shouldn't you just, you know, man up and talk to them? I understand the reluctance is partly because of The Rock and who he was and his value. Rocky told me he got a million dollars every year for his birthday uh, from his son. So, you know, obviously there's an element there that you've got to question. Oh, these people are only reaching out to me for money. So we really had to be careful about that. And, and all the kids were very adamant that it wasn't about The Rock. This is just about being acknowledged and about you know, the kind of person that Rocky was and that he was out there doing these things. Are you or are any of the children under the assumption or do you have the feeling that there may be more of Rocky Johnson's children out there? So that's mentioned briefly in the article, but 
Lisa is adamant, and and Lisa is a very spiritual person, and does the cleanse, and and likes to go out in nature, and and find herself, and all those kind of things. She's adamant that there's more kids out there. Like she can feel it, she knows it, and it again, it's part of the fascinating part of these journeys is getting to know these people. And I, I don't doubt her, and she thinks it's probably down near Atlanta, uh, in part because that's where some of Rocky's other siblings lived. They're all gone now. Ricky, Ricky's the only one who's still alive. Um, but he had another brother named Bob, uh, another one called Mervyn. But Bob lived down in Atlanta. So that's where Lisa thinks they are somewhere. And she thinks they're twins. So they may come forward out of this. I don't know. That's, again, that's part of the fun. Maybe this story's not completely done. Let's talk a little bit about Ricky Johnson, because you talked previously on the show about your relationship with him, and you mentioned it early on here that he was one of the first wrestlers to embrace you when you were a young teenage reporter wanting to do things around wrestling. One of the things the article really points out is how he was the opposite. He was completely accepting of everyone when they got in touch with him, and sometimes he would cry as much as they would. You've known Ricky Johnson a long time. What can you tell the listeners about him? Because some may remember him from Polynesian Pro Wrestling or something. But for those who don't know anything about Ricky Johnson, the brother of Rocky Johnson, what kind of guy is he? Well, that, that's a good point. And you wouldn't know about that from Young Rock because he's been completely ignored there. He spent two years, you know, tag teaming a Soul Patrol in, in Polynesian Pro with his brother. He's eight years younger, so they weren't particularly close growing up. Um, but, you know, Ricky got into wrestling, and, and obviously there's a tie-in to, to Rocky and, and encouragement. And... I can't say they're all that different, uh, if I'm being honest. Ricky and Rocky, I mean, it's it's the wrestling business, right? They're taught to be carnies. They're taught to, you know, try to, maybe not cheat people is the right word, but they're tricking people, right? They're, their very nature of what they do is to portray something as real that is not. And I'm sure you found that with a lot of wrestlers, too. Sometimes they can't turn off that carniness. Yeah. And so Ricky's like that, but he's a very lovable, jovial guy. Um, he likes to have a couple of drinks and, and enjoy himself and laugh a lot. He will be the first to admit that he's not perfect. He's had uh, issues with his, He has a daughter that he hasn't seen in years and years and years. Uh, he had trouble for the longest time with his stepson, Chad, um, but they've made things up apparently. Um, so there's, there's those issues, right? Nobody's flawless. Uh, you know, but there's issues that, that Ricky's going to talk about. There's issues that, the issues that aren't. In fact, one of my earlier drafts of it had Ricky talking about some of those things. But in the end, we had to sort of condense it, right? It had to be a little more focused on just the kids. And the family aspect is really what comes through is they went from having no father to all of a sudden having a family, right? There's, there's five of them now, brothers and sisters, and there's closest can be, uh, they were there for each other when Lisa's daughter died unexpectedly in her, in her early 30s. So there's all those different things that happen that, that make this a more powerful story than just about Rocky Johnson. It's really about family coming together. In terms of the people you reached out to, you briefly mentioned reaching out to The Rock earlier. I want to ask you about that. But Ada Johnson or Rocky's widow, did you reach out to them for a comment on this? Okay. So let's put it this way. Um, Sheila is a complicated woman. That's Rocky's uh, third wife. Um, I'm not sure there are many people that get along with her, period. Um, Ada's a sweetheart, and I did tell her that the story was coming, and we talked about it. It wasn't on the record, 
but we talked about it. I just wanted her to be in the loop because that way she wouldn't be blindsided. Um, that was also the same day that we reached out and SI, you know, absolutely required this. They wanted us to reach out to Dwayne's people. Um, so, you know, his publicists, which are very high profile people, and obviously his ties to the sports world are important. And so I learned his publicist is also Tom Brady's publicist. So they have all kinds of ties to Sports Illustrated. So there was, to be honest, a little bit of fear that it might get spiked. Uh, my editor, Adam Durson, who I mentioned already, he was always on side saying, it's not going to happen. Let that fear go. But there's always that element of that, right? We know how powerful The Rock is. Uh, you know, is he going to deny coverage of the XFL to Sports Illustrated if they run this article? I don't know. I don't know exactly how low those things work, right? That's above our pay grade. So you had to take a little bit of thing on, on faith. But I reached out. I know they talked to the bosses at Sports Illustrated, but they never got back in touch with me. And I also know that Dwayne knew about all this through ADA. So I did my job. I did my due diligence. and it's. I, but I'm not sure what Rock could have added, right? If I talk to Dwayne, what's he going to add to the story? I don't know these people. It's fascinating this happened. I wish my dad had not done all this, but he did. And what's done is done. So that's fine. You know, it, it, there's really nothing he could have added. There's, of course, now you're reading all the comments on social media. It's like, oh, well, Rock's going to have to buy a couple more houses now for family members because that seems to be his thing. And that's great. He, he's going to be philanthropic and, and help his friends and family. Uh, like the truck he got for, for Bruno, downtown Bruno. Everybody loves downtown well, Bruno. Well, he gets lots of things for everyone. He films it every time he does it. But one of the things the article points out is not one of these children of Rocky Johnson's is asking for The Rock or Dwayne Johnson to do anything. They're not even asking to meet him. No, exactly. It's not that important to them. You know, all they wanted to do is be acknowledged. But that's what also makes it an interesting story is that they are related to, you know, easily one of the top 10 most famous people on the planet. And that's just circumstance, right? That's nothing to do with them. It's really nothing to do. Well, it's the Rock's hard work. Obviously, they got him there. It's not Rocky that got him there. So yeah, it's it's, a, <laughs> it's an odd story. Uh, it's a fascinating story, and I'm glad it's out there. But yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, we tried to talk to the right people. Um, Wanda and Curtis are the kids from the first marriage, and I've dealt with them both on occasion in the past. But they want nothing to do with these kids and have said as much to them um, that what their father did was what their father did. And it has nothing to do with them either. Just the same way it doesn't have anything to do with Dwayne. In terms of Rocky's behavior and trying to figure out a clearly complex guy, you know, when you and him had issues with the book, I believe he ghosted you in the end. And he ghosted Scott Teal in the end. That's and, the word for it, ghosted, yeah. And he ghosted several of his children when they got in touch with him. You mentioned his siblings were in Atlanta, Ricky's up in Canada still. Was this something beyond the children that would reach out to him? Was he known for ghosting family members or was he always tight with his family? I don't know exactly. Well, so one of the times I met Rocky was, you know, he came up to Toronto to, to visit his, Mer his brother Mervyn, who was dying. And so, you know, we had breakfast. Like, you know, you don't want to be you can't do everything on those days you come up to visit loved ones, right? You need to have a little bit of a break. So I was a break. We talked about wrestling and this and that. So there's that aspect of it. So I guess he was close enough. He wanted to come say goodbye. Um, 
so I can't really speak exactly how his relationship worked with everybody else. He had up and down relationships with Ricky, and I know that for a fact. Um, you know, there were times they were great friends. There were times they weren't. Uh, Ricky would say one thing and Rocky would say the other about how their relationship went down. Uh, and I've heard both sides. And so, again, somebody like Dwayne is sort of caught in the middle. You know, he'd been to the wedding for, you know, his uh, well, that'd be his cousin, Chad, who was uh, Ricky's stepson. So he'd come up to Toronto for that. Or, you know, The Rock invited Wanda and Curtis down to his first wedding to Danny, his half-siblings. So, I mean, family is important to them in general, but whether they kept in touch regularly, I, I really don't know. You know, Greg, you've written so many obituaries of wrestlers and you cover wrestling and you have for so many years. I'm curious your thoughts about how a wrestling journalist, or more specifically, I guess, just even a wrestling fan who's knowledgeable. How is that fan supposed to reconcile with the idea that a wrestler who was incredibly popular, beloved, like a Rocky Johnson, just about everywhere he ever went, he was incredibly popular, and the fans loved him. How do you reconcile that? And there are other examples. It's not just Rocky Johnson, Jimmy Snuka. But how do you reconcile that with when you find out that the person was... I don't know what you want to say, lesser quality outside of the ring than what you saw in the ring. You know, the fan who doesn't read The Observer or, you know, listen to podcasts or read Slam Wrestling, who grew up loving Jimmy Snuka, what's the react? Like, what are they supposed to feel when they find out these things? And, and it's a weird question. I don't even know exactly where I'm going with it, but it just but, seems but like we that, run into this a lot with wrestling and a lot more recently. But isn't the difference just the fundamental undergroundness of wrestling, right? Bill Cosby is a dirtbag too. Can you listen to a Bill Cosby album the same way? No. no. But it doesn't mean there aren't elements in there that you still really like. But everybody knows that Bill Cosby is awful. Not everybody knows how terrible, you know, Superfly Snooker was because that never got out there. They, they hit it so well for so long. And even now, it, it's not as obvious. It's not part of your mainstream knowledge the way some of these things are. So kudos to Sports Illustrated for publishing a story like this and getting it out there a little bit more. Uh, that's part of our job, right? You got to get it out there and into the popular culture, I guess, in a way and, and have it out there. And, and the other problem is, of course, WWE is writing its own history, right? It's the same guys to get profiled again and again with their hagiographies on, on biography right? Where they're making the same story again and again. Here's Stone Cold and his story and Hogan and Flair and Piper. It's like, it's the same old guys. And so you don't get the real dirt on all these other ones. And then Dark Side of the Ring doesn't always get the access that they need. Um, and, and maybe they went too far. And that's or have the accuracy they, they need. Well, accuracy matters a lot too, but it's also entertainment, right? So you, you, you want both. And that's the problem. It's got to be entertaining. If you do just like, uh, let's say you take a Cowboy Bob Ellis, you know, horse racing trial, you know, is that going to captivate an audience for an hour? No. So you got to find a way to make that more interesting, right? Whereas, yeah, the Superfly Snooker, well, how do you make it any less interesting? I mean, he murdered her, as far as everybody can see, the Nancy Artentero. Um, yeah, and yet he got pushed, and, and WWE did everything in its power to push it under the table. Uh, so back to the original question. Yeah, I think you can still appreciate Rocky Johnson that you watched and that you enjoyed performing when he, when you were young. Um, he was an amazing performer. He was a pioneer. He was able to 
break some barriers. Um, being Canadian, he grew up in a slightly different way than a lot of the other African-American wrestlers that came along. His knowledge of racism was different, right? It doesn't mean he didn't experience it growing up. He just experienced it in a different way than a guy that, say, grew up in maybe Tennessee or Mississippi. And so he's standing up for himself in a way when he's on the road that some of the guys maybe didn't have the nerve to do. And I think that empowered a lot of other people. And it also upset a lot of other African-Americans because Rocky did think he was a little bit better than him. He definitely had an ego, but yet wrestling's a business where you need an ego. If you don't have an ego, you're not going to succeed, right? You got to believe in yourself. Uh, what a fascinating business. Why do we spend so much time with it, Brian? Well, so that one day our children give us a million dollars a year. That's, uh, I think, why, obviously. Well, I think I have a better chance with my son as a football coach than I do with wrestling. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. But, Greg, I appreciate you doing this here today. Before we wrap things up, you mentioned the John Gibbons book. Please give the listeners information about what you're currently working on, what's coming out soon, and, of course, what's going on over at Slam Wrestling. Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. Um, so, oliverbooks.ca is where I try to keep track of everything. Uh, I have a book coming out in April uh, on John Gibbons from ECW Press. That's been fascinating, and I completely owe everything with that to John Arezzi. He was obviously the hookup, and I wrote John's book, and so he hooked me up with Gibby. And then I also did Medusa's book, uh, Medusa Michelli, uh, Alundra Blaze, and that's also coming out in the spring. And her book is fascinating on so many levels. There's never been a book for adults on monster trucks period. So if you imagine somebody like a, what would be a good example? Um, if you had took a Vin Scully, somebody very well respected as a, as an announcer and gave him a, a book that had never been done on baseball. And he came back and said, I can't believe you guys wrote all those things. That's what happened to the monster truck world when we trusted it to somebody to read. And I'm not allowed to say who, but it's like, there's just never been anything revealed about monster trucks. Uh, so that's fascinating, but her own personal life is just incredible. Uh, as for slamwrestling.net, uh, we complete, you know, continue to plug along. It's, uh, it's a fascinating business. I mean, one week you can have an, a feature on Ranger Ross, somebody nobody ever talks to. And the next week, of course, you're doing an article on, you know, somebody who died, a Tim White or a, the Dave Hebner one went viral. Like, I don't understand how the internet works sometimes, and I'm sure you're the same way, but our story went viral and it's the biggest story we've ever had on Slam Wrestling. And it really, Dave that, Hebner, the Dave Hebner one again. Wow. It, it just, however, it worked. It went viral, and just more people shared that than any other thing we've ever done. Sorry, since the relaunch is the better way to put it, right? When we went off on our own before the after the sun cut us, because um, yeah, I mean, obviously your Chris Benoit's and your your own heart stories. We were top of the entire website back then uh, for all of Canoe. Um, so yeah, this is a little different. This is since we went off on our own in uh, during the pandemic. Uh, but yeah, it's still quite fascinating to think about. It's like, wow, like they just, just a fluke sometimes, right? You, you get retweeted by the right people, they share it and off you go. That's all it takes. <laughs> That's all it takes. Let's hope it happens with this, this story. I, I hope it continues to find some legs, uh, for, for Rocky's other children. There it is. And there we are. And we are out of here. Of course, more information about the show and everything else are in the show description. Go to Twitter at GreatBrianLast, at 605Pod, at SuperPodcasts for Arcadian Vanguard. 
Support all Arcadian Vanguard shows, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. And of course, until next time, the 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For my guest, Greg Oliver, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!